Hello, my name is Katherine Moore, social worker, mom, coffee lover, and founder of Social Workers Rise, where we inspire social workers to connect, expand their knowledge, and change more lives than they ever thought possible. I'm so excited you found my podcast. We will talk everything social work on every level from micro to macro. We will hear the stories of social workers who are doing big things, learn new skills, and most importantly, give you actionable steps to make a difference today. Let's go. Hello, welcome to another episode of Social Workers Rise. It is your host, Catherine here. We're going to be talking this week with Jessica Eisman of Ajana Therapy. She got her BS in psychology from the University of Houston and then completed more professional education at the University of Houston Clear Lake and got her master's degree in counseling. She has 10 plus years of working in mental health services, including individuals, couples, group counseling, crisis intervention, and psychological assessments. As the state of mental health in America continues to really struggle, we're in a crisis, and we have been for a long time, but it's really been amplified after COVID. I wanted to give you some background statistics on the state of mental health in America based off of the study from Mental Health America. And as you can kind of, as you can imagine, uh, the mental health need is increasing, especially among youth. So youth mental health is actually worsening. So 9.7% of youth in the United States have severe major depression. And that's compared to 9.2 in the last year's data set. And the highest among the youth who identify as more than one race was at 12.4%. So if you identify as more than one race, you are more likely to have severe major depression as a youth in America. Very heartbreaking. And to go on, more people, so people in general, not just the youth, but more people are reporting frequent thoughts of suicide and self-harm than have ever been recorded in the Mental Health America screening program since its start in 2014. So since COVID-19 pandemic began to spread rapidly in March of 2020, over 178,000 people have reported frequent suicide ideation. And additionally, 37% of people reported having thoughts of suicide more than half or nearly every day in September of 2020. That's a lot of people. Young people continue to to be the ones to struggle most with their mental health, um, but they're actually the ones who have increased their search of mental health support services. So youth ages 11 to 17 have been more likely than any other group to score for moderate to severe symptoms of anxiety and depression. And furthermore, rates of suicidal ideation 
are actually highest among youth, especially LGBTQ youth. In September of 2020, over half of the 11 to 17 year olds reported having thoughts of suicide or self-harm more than half or nearly every day out of the previous two weeks. People screening, people screening at risk for mental health conditions are struggling the most with loneliness or isolation. And additionally, people who identify as Asian or Pacific Islander are searching for mental health resources more than they had in the past. So their numbers increased from being 7% to about 9% of the people who took the screen in 2020. And while rates of anxiety, depression, and suicidal ideation are increasing for all races and ethnicities, there are notable differences in those changes over time. Black or African-American screeners have had the highest average percent change over time for anxiety and depression, meaning the black and African communities have seen an increase in the reports of anxiety and depression, while Native American or American Indian screeners have had the highest average percent of change over time for suicidal ideation. So these statistics are pretty staggering and it just speaks to the need of our society in America and the need for your services if you are a mental health provider. We need people who are really great at what they do, who are able to relate to people on, on different levels with different cultures, different languages, different specialties, especially depression and anxiety, a focus on youth, mental health, and also to a representation of various cultures so that people seeking out services can just feel more supported and can feel like they relate to someone who just gets them and that they can be open and honest and really express how they're able to feel. More so, this also speaks to the need for our mental health professionals to be well-trained, to have a diverse group of clinical supervisors to really nurture and help the future generation of mental health professionals to grow. Because we were already in a shortage before COVID, and now, now that there is an increase of demand for mental health services, it's really, really important that we keep the mental health providers that we have and we don't burn them out. Please, please don't burn out before you get licensed and before you can become a therapist if that is your goal. So that is ultimately, you know, one of the big reasons why we started the RISE directory is so that there is a place for diverse clinical supervisors to go let people know that their supervision services are available and for the new generation of clinical social workers to be able to find them to be able to find you if that is a service you offered. If you have not considered providing clinical supervision, definitely look at your state website at the people who manage, it's called different things all over the country, but the people who manage your licensing and see if you're able to provide clinical supervision services because 
there is a shortage of supervisors and we need you. We need your leadership. We need you to help the next generation of clinical social workers grow. So with that, let's, I'm going to stop ranting, (laughs) but we're going to hop into this episode with Jessica. And if you love it, definitely leave me five stars and write a little review about why you love listening to the podcast. I really, really appreciate you. Let's hop into this episode. This episode is proudly brought to you by the RISE Directory, a national directory of clinical supervisors who are dedicated to helping the next generation of clinical social workers grow in their clinical skills. The link is in the show notes. Check it out and tell every clinical supervisor you know about this directory. Hi, Jessica. Hey, how are you? I'm great. Welcome to the Social Workers Rise podcast. I'm so excited to talk with you today. Um, Yeah. So, so if y'all don't know Jessica, Jessica Eisman, she is just a wealth of knowledge. So she is the founder and clinical director of the Ajana, is that how you pronounce it? Ajana, uh uh-huh. Ajana Therapy and Clinical Services, and she specializes in working with professionals who are struggling with symptoms of trauma, anxiety, depression, and life transitions, which, oh my gosh, is all of us this past (laughs) year and a half. (laughs) Exactly. Yes, I think everybody (laughs) falls in that category. You're, You're absolutely right. Yeah, exactly. So uh, thank you so much for being here. You know, I first came across you because I don't even know where I saw it. It was probably on Instagram because I'm on there way too much um, (laughs) about your blog, about how the commercialization of mental health impacts independent private practices. And I just thought like, wow, this is exactly what I have kind of been seeing sort of because I'm on the outside I haven't quite jumped into a commercial mental health agency but I could definitely see how you know it's mental health is almost being uberized into Mm -hmm. just you know these apps and I'm thinking you know is it good is it bad it's probably a little bit of both Um, but I really just wanted to hear you know about you so tell us you know first how did you come to be a therapist? Like, what do you do right now? And then how did this article or idea um, come up for you? Yeah. Um, So I have an interesting kind of story. Um, I've been probably practicing for about 13 years now. um, But the first place I worked um, right out of grad school was actually shut down by the FBI within six months. Um, So that could also be like its own podcast, probably. Yeah. Um, obviously I'm not guilty or didn't have anything to do with it or I wouldn't be here, but, um, yeah, um, it was, there was like a whole Medicare Medicaid fraud, um, that was happening in this like partial hospitalization that I worked. Um, so, um, but I was kind of like thrown in with like really, um, psychotic and aggressive individuals. Um, I worked there for about six months and then I started working with adolescents and their families. Um, I worked in private practice and then a huge portion of my work is I worked for Baylor College of Medicine in Houston um, through the Harris County community mental health settings. 
Um, and so we saw like 13 patients a day on our schedule um, in an eight hour shift. Um, and yeah, <laughs> um, those, in, those in community health are probably, um, you know, knowing what I mean. Um, luckily, not all 13 of them always showed up every day, but um, still, it was still just, you know, a lot. Um, and got to see a lot of like range of diagnoses and um, saw a lot of people who were low income, no income, homeless. Um, and um, then um, at some point I got pregnant and had my daughter um, who's now four and um, I felt like I couldn't do it as much anymore. Um, and so um, I started looking into things that I could do from home um, and I actually started working for a healthcare company um, and I knew I was either going to love it or hate it and I totally hated it. Uh, it was a horrible experience. Um, and, um, that kind of pushed me to be so uncomfortable to kind of move into private practice. Um, and actually during that time, I mean, that's a lot of like, kind of what formed some of my opinions, um, that I have, I did sign up at some point for talk space. Cause I was a little nervous that I wasn't going to be able to have enough people. Um, and I actually failed talk space Academy or whatever it is that they had. And I'm a proud, um, dropout. Um, so I, um, I didn't write what they wanted me to write. Um, Ah. and when I got the feedback in that way, it really bothered me. And I was like, I'm not even going to try to do this. I'm not going to go forward with this. Um, so that was kind of my first, um, you know, experience. Um, and then, um, what year was that in? Oh my goodness. That was. 2018 or 19. Okay. So fairly recently. Yeah. 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 Fair, recently mm-hmm. enough. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so, um, you know, our, you know, doing that, like I said, kind of impacted, you know, my, how I feel about certain things and also just seeing some of my other colleagues, um, going through this and, then when I started seeing some of these other like major companies, especially as the pandemic, you know, started to, um, you know, get worse and mental health is like this whole other pandemic in of itself. Right. Um, I um, started to kind of really like research a little bit more into some of these like different companies that were coming up. And um, I actually um, work a lot with um, the founder of, um, mental health match, Ryan. Um, and, um, I started writing my blog. I did that blog and then he and I, um, and a few other people, um, Nicole, um, Leola, um, and Michael Fulweiler wrote another blog or another kind of blog on, um, I can't remember the name of it right now. Um, is this the end of private practice therapist? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, is this the end of the private practice therapist? Mm-hmm. Um, and that got, I mean, cause they have a lot more followers than I, than, you know, my little private practice does. So, um, you know, the last I knew that was hitting like close to 50,000 viewers. Um, and yeah, I, I think I remember seeing that title you, floating you probably around. Did, yeah. 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 Um, you know, and so, yeah, I think I would, th- I thought it was really cool that you actually found my blog instead of that one. And that was what you reached out about. Um, but you know, from my research and then also like doing the research to write that, um, you know, blog with them, I just, um, you know, found a lot of stuff that I thought was, 
you know, really difficult um, or, and not so fun. And, um, you know, I'm definitely somebody who believes in an abundance mentality. So I know sometimes like some people might think that this comes from like a scarcity, um, you know, and being worried or fearful. Um, but it comes more so from like this really fearing like what's going to happen, um, you know, how this is really going to impact us, mm-hmm. um, you know, in the field, like what does this do to the profession as a whole? Um, so how- can let's yes. just I'm kind of wondering, OK, because the commercialization of mental health, some some people might really not know what that means. Yeah. Like, can you kind of break that down? Like, what what is it exactly yeah. that we're talking about? Well, this is how I phrase it. Um, like, um, you know, because there's been this like bigger need, um, you know, these bigger um, companies are forming and kind of seeing another avenue of profit. So, um, you know, the gig economy, quote unquote, was something that, you know, started to get really big, especially with the pandemic. Um, and these companies are kind of creating a gig economy um, within the mental health field. Um, so, um, you know, it's providing, um, you know, uh, therapeutic care, kind of like Uber disrupted the private taxi industry, um, if you think about it like that. Um, and so, so there's these major companies that started to come out many years ago, like Talkspace, BetterHelp, Able to, Ginger, you know, these companies started to go out. And then we have some other companies that have started to come in, um, you know, um, Headway, Alma, um, which is a different set of things. And I can talk more about that if you want, but um, now even CVS and Amazon are getting in on, on the action. So it's, it's becoming this kind of gig um, that's, that's sometimes I think scaring, especially newer clinicians from maybe going into their own practice or joining a practice because it creates kind of this fear that we're not going to be able to do it without this like huge organization. Mm, I see. Yeah. I've, I've read a recent statistic that the majority of therapists are within private practices. So there's not an Amazon of therapy, right? Mm. They're all mom and pop shops. Mm -hmm. Well, not all of them, but a lot of them, most of them are mom and pop shops. So it'll be interesting to kind of see how, how this impacts us, you know, over the next five, 10 years, is there going to be one company Mm -hmm. that kind of, you know, overcomes or is the Amazon or the Uber of, of therapy, which is, I'm like, you know, good and bad because it's good because people everywhere are in need of therapeutic support and Mm -hmm. a lot of people don't know where to go or how to find it or how to get matched with somebody um we know that because we're in the space and we know all the different platforms but the general population it's there's a lot of work to be done there um which in that sense I'm grateful that companies like Amazon are bringing this to the forefront and saying hey you know it's okay we offer the service and it normalizes it. Yes. But also the other word might be commercialize it. Right. And then there's the other flip side is that I've seen some of these companies hire life coaches. Mm -hmm. I shit you not. They hire life coaches. 
who have been through like a certificate program. Oh my God. Yeah. And, and have like portrayed them as mental, as like therapists. Yeah. Yes. Um, No, you got, and it's because there's, they're, they're tech people, you know, they're, they're entrepreneur, they're business minded tech people. They don't understand the difference. Absolutely. Absolutely. And in some ways, you know, that's really good or helpful. I think like companies like Headway um, and Alma, you know, are kind of doing something where they are helping therapists, you know, get more income if they use, um, you know, insurance. And also like, why are the insurance companies not directly negotiating with us? Because meanwhile, this business is making billions and billions and getting all of this you know, funding toward it, which could go just directly into mental health. Exactly. Exactly. That's my other beef with this is that these companies are making billions of dollars off of the backs of therapists and who are making, I don't know, I've, I've seen 30 to $90 an hour, mm-hmm. but they're making billions in profit. And that just goes to some, you know, wherever, wherever they wherever they put it, but it's not back into our mental health professionals. It's not back into our training. It's not back into the, the populations who really need it. It's not back into, you know, the, the systematic issues that cause all of these men, you know, a lot of the mental health problems that we see, maybe, maybe they do, you know, I know there is some giving, but I, I just, I have a problem with that also. Yeah. I haven't quite seen that yet um you know and I think it takes it takes a it just kind of takes away from the profession kind of as a whole right like um these commercialized companies are luring therapists you know to come to them with bigger paychecks less administrative work flexible schedules um but there's also a lot of um restrictions on like you know, amount of words that you're allowed to use, you know, the pay is very minimal. I've seen like $25 an hour. Um, you know, the um, confidential confidentiality of clients is being um, um, extorted and, um, you know, it's not being held to be confidential. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of things that are a big problem with, with this. And that makes sense because as I, you know, I have the podcast, I'm learning a little bit about marketing. It makes sense because they're going to look at, okay, who is coming to our company? What mental health issues do they have? And how can we further target that? Mm -hmm. Like, how can we further target moms with anxiety who shop at Target? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, And they have the, they have the money to do that. Meanwhile, like, smaller practices, right? Independent practice owners, you know, I've had to increase my marketing budget for SEO because if you look up any sort of mental health, like it pushes all of us down significantly because they're driving up these keywords for us, Mm. making it, you know, less affordable. And so, you know, somebody might want to come and see, you know, you know, one of us, and then they get on the internet and they look and they see all these advertisements for these bigger companies. And they might like, well, let me try this and see how it works. And oftentimes they're not even that much cheaper um, than either using your insurance or even paying, you know, private practice out of pocket costs. 
um, when you kind of break down some of their, their fee structures. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. And I wonder what the effectiveness is. Like, I don't know if there's been any kind of study, you know, it'd have to be a pretty large scale study, but is there different effectiveness between the large companies and, or using like text-based therapy, you know, like all these different avenues, which one is proven most effective for who I would be interested to see, you know, that kind of research. Yeah. Um, one of the, and I can't remember, I mean, it was from Talkspace's own kind of evaluations, but they found that 44% of clients didn't complete a full 12 week course of treatment, which is kind of the minimum that research kind of suggests, right? Shows some like real lasting improvements on anxiety, mood disorders, depression. Um, so, you know, people aren't even get, getting, you know, that from some of the services that they're receiving. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have read some other research too that talks about how, um, you know, really at this point, text therapy isn't empirically supported, um, especially when you're being able, like when you're giving minimum amounts and you actually get docked in pay if, or if you go over what you're you know, allowed to say to the client. Mm-hmm. Right. And that just, I don't know, text messages can be misconstrued so many yeah. ways. Yes. I mean, even for me, depending on my mood, <laughs> absolutely, I, I will interpret it in different ways. Yes. If, if I'm pissed off and you just say, okay, I'll be like, oh, well, she's right. just okay. Right. <laughs> or, have, or heaven forbid, just K, right? Because right? it's like, oh, okay. You know, can't even spell the whole word out. Like, can't even use the O. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but if you're in a, if I'm in a happy mood, I'll be like, oh, okay, you know, whatever. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So there's there's so much that's missing. I can see maybe if you're doing text therapy as an intro to kind of like get them get them in, be like, hey, you know, it's a real person here. Let me call you or let's hop on the Zoom call real fast. Yeah, yeah. You know, but not for a whole therapy. Yeah, so much gets missed. And even, yeah, I mean, I think like a supplement to might not necessarily be the worst, right? Like technology is shifting mm-hmm. and changing. Like most, I think millennials and whatever the generation is after that um, is, you know, I think texting is like a huge part of how they communicate, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I think some aspects of that can be good, but not being kind of all or most or or like I said having to be like restricted in that way Um, because you think about it like a lot of people come to therapy to these places for the first time um, and if that their experience isn't great right if they're superficially engaging with a therapist who's Mm -hmm. not a good fit for them like they're gonna quit um, right and they're gonna think that that's what therapy is and it might take a while, you know, I hear stories a lot from people who tried those things and it takes them a while to come back um, and try somebody else. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's true. I've, I've heard multiple stories from people who say I've tried therapy, but I think my therapist traumatized me further. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, Oh, well, that's just a, not a good fit for you. Like, please try it again. But it's hard because it's such a, especially right now. I mean, just this past, within the past week, I spoke with someone, she said, 
yeah, I tried to find a therapist, but, and my insurance sent me a list of 12 therapists who accept my insurance, but they either didn't call me back or they were full. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. Like that. And that's frustrating. I mean, you have this, this either depression or anxiety, whatever it is that you're suffering from and you're trying to find help and making 12 phone calls just yeah. to, when you I don't mean, have the motivation. To- I mean, how discouraging is that? Yeah. Oh no, absolutely. Right. That, that, um, you know, and, and not therapists, not calling back. And I know that we're all like super busy, um, you know, um, but you know, I think it's still good, good to try to call somebody back. Um, definitely. And, and, you know, and that's the thing too, is in some of the things, the things that I was looking at, you know, um, or what my experience has been with, um, you know, insurance companies too, is that they're actually not, um, they put limits on like how many people that they're going to put within a certain zip code or, um, you know, city or, you know, so, um, they're actually limiting sometimes. And I, and like I said, I think Alma and, and Headway are trying to help in, in that as they're like, you know, getting people through a lot sooner, like they're getting a lot more people, but they've negotiated that with them so that they can get a higher rate, right? And get people in quicker. And, and it goes back to like my comment earlier, like why can't the insurance company just do that with us directly? Mm-hmm. Yep, it's so true. So you end your blog on kind of a somber note. So mm-hmm. gone will be the days where a hopeful new therapist will be able to dream of hanging a, sh- a shingle and instead will graduate to work in a factory for mental health. Is that, is that really how, how you feel, Jessica? Is that what we have to look forward to? I mean, I don't want to be, you know, naive, but I also kind of want to see both sides. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, I think, I think at the time when I was writing the blog, I was having one of those moments where I was a little worried. Um, you know, I think that, um, I think, like I said, I think, you know, as therapists, I don't know about you, but like, you know, we're, we're, we're brought in and told immediately like that we can't, we're not in this field to make money. Um, we're shamed a lot of times if we do attempt to make money or if we, mm-hmm. um, you know, our private pay, um, you know, and so a lot of us come in thinking like, we're not making, we're not allowed to make money you know, it's scary to be on your own in private practice, like, or there's not a whole lot of stability in that, especially with all of these newer companies and the way that they're luring kind of people in of like, hey, look, like, you don't have, you can make your own schedule and, um, you know, things will be flexible and like, we don't have to do the paperwork and, you know, and so that sounds really good. <laughs> um, and then you get in there, right? And, and, um, so I can see a lot of people potentially like younger generations going into this and not recognizing or not even maybe knowing how to find, um, you know, a group private, a local group private practice to kind of start yourself out with or, um, you know, somebody to be able to mentor them into learning how to build a private practice or, you know, what are the other options that they have out in the, uh, in the community? 
That's a good point. How would someone find a private practice to, to start out with? You know, um, one of the, the cool things that we found um, when we were looking through, um, it's funny because I just happened to find it. Um, there is a Facebook group actually called, um, my computer's being slow, but I want to give you all the name. Um, but it's, it's by Lisa Lovelace, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and she actually has a Facebook group that she started, um, in, um, that she wanted to, um, it's like therapists who are looking to join a group private practice. Oh, okay. Uh, and there's like many exclamation points <laughs> after it. <laughs> um, and she, um, she has started that group and I thought that was such a neat thing that happened like right you know as I was like writing that other article yeah therapist looking to join a group practice with three exclamation points after um and you know I think that's a really good way like the fact that she started that and it's becoming a little bit more popular um because there's a lot of therapists who are in there that are either looking for a job or um they are um actively recruiting and a lot of people a lot of you know group private practices right now are looking for people because they're so busy yes yes I've heard that too yeah that's awesome and the link for that is in the show notes the Facebook link Um, also the link to the blog that we've been talking about and how to get in contact with Jessica Um, so Jessica I just want to Thank you so much. Was there anything else that you feel is important that we should definitely mention today? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one is, I mean, this doesn't have to be this way, right? I think that, you know, there's a possibility for all of us to kind of live in this middle ground. Um, And, you know, potentially these other companies can happen. And also, like, I think we just need to be really cautious um, and attempt to try to build our own, like, professional communities and, um, you know, grow clinicians so that they know that they have these different opportunities, um, you know, um, and then, you know, try to, um, you know, hopefully some of those things will impact, you know, the greater whole and, um, you know, private practices will, will still be okay. Um, we'll yeah. be able to live in harmony. Definitely. You know, the mom and pop shops are making a comeback in the food industry. I'm confident that the private practices will continue to stay. Um, Thank you so much, Jessica. I did want to ask, are you, you mentioned helping the new generation grow. Are you offering clinical supervision services? I do. Yeah. Um, out of, I'm, I'm a supervisor in Texas, so I do offer that. Um, and also our practice um, does hire graduate students. Um, and, um, you know, as they're, they're working on their um, master's degree, and then also like, you know, then a lot of my grad students kind of go into the LPC associate role. Um, and so, you know, I think that's a really good way too. Um, and that allows us to also like give back to the community because we're able to do like an economic equity base scale, like sliding scale for individuals. Um, so um, I also encourage people to think about kind of looking outside of the box for that. Like, you know, we can still make, you know, healthcare affordable and, um, or mental health care affordable and also, you know, accessible 
um, within our own practices. Definitely. Well, we're going to have to get you into the RISE directory, which is our brand new national directory of clinical supervisors. We would be honored to have you. (laughs) Yeah, that's awesome. Congratulations. What a cool offering. Yeah, yeah. So thank you so much, Jessica. With that, um, definitely reach out to her, follow her on her social media and read that blog. It's really, really interesting. So um, we'll see you next week. Take care. Thank you. Bye. thank you for joining us on another episode of social workers rise if you loved it please open up your itunes tap the five stars and leave a short note on why you love listening to the social workers rise podcast Also, if you want to share it on social media, I absolutely love it. You have me fangirling all over you. Take a screenshot and share it and tag me at Social Workers Rise on Instagram and Facebook. Lastly, just want to leave a little bit of legal disclosure here that the information, opinions, and recommendations presented in the Social Workers Rise podcast are for general information only and any reliance on the information provided in this podcast is done so at your own risk. This podcast should not be used in place of professional advice, therapy, or clinical supervision. And with that, my friends, I'll talk to you next week. Welcome to another episode of Social Workers Rise. It is your host, Catherine Moore here. This week, we're talking with Daishika Bibbs, who is a LCSW and also a national trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapist. She has over 11 and a half years of experience working with children, teens, adults, couples, and military families. And this week, we're really focusing the conversation on working with trauma in children? And specifically, how do we take care of ourselves when we're working with people who have experienced trauma? Before we even start this conversation, I feel like it's important that we first explore a little bit about what exactly are we talking about when we're referring to trauma? So the most comprehensive study was the ACE study, A-C-E, Adverse Childhood Experiences. And these are potentially traumatic events that occur in childhood from zero to 17 years old. For example, we're talking about events where the child is experiencing violence, abuse, or neglect. They're witnessing this either in their home or their community. They may have a family member who has attempted or died by suicide. This also includes parts of the child's environment that can make them feel unsafe or really affect their stability or bonding with the parent, such as substance abuse problems, mental health problems, or instability due to parental separation of like a divorce or household members being in jail or prison. So ACEs are actually linked to chronic health problems 
mental illness, and substance use problems in adulthood. And it can also negatively impact education, job opportunities, and earning potential. So these are really, really instrumental in our foundation and how we're raised and also to how we live out in adulthood. So I did some further digging and I wanted to know how common is this? It turns out it is pretty common. About 61% of adults surveyed across the United States reported that they have experienced at least one type of ACE. And one in six of those people reported that they had experienced four or more. However, here's the kicker part and why it is so applicable to us as social workers is that there was a study done that social workers are significantly more likely than the average person to report at least one ACE or adverse childhood experience. So 61% of the general population and this study found that 79% of students actually reported at least, of social work students, reported at least one ACE, while 42% reported four or more, and almost one-fourth reporting six or more ACEs in their childhood. So this is really significant because people in our field have a lot of us have these experiences that that were harmful or possibly traumatic right and it made us who we are for better or worse and a lot of us are motivated by some of these experiences to go into the field of social work and that's actually in the study too i put all these all these uh links and sites in the show notes for you if you're learning if you want to learn more But it's really significant because when we have a population of social workers or any mental health professional really who has experienced a high amount of ACEs in their in their life it really places us at an increased need to process our own experiences through therapy or through clinical supervision or both really just to ensure our own mental wellness and to reduce any kind of interference that we may have when encountering people in similar situations that we experienced because we don't want counter transference to become a problem in our work or even harmful for our clients. So that is a little bit of background about what specifically we're talking about when we're talking about trauma, um, a little bit of the prevalence and why it is so important as social workers that we are talking about this and acknowledging this high rate of ACEs that we have within our industry, that it can really be, it can really be our strength, but we need to first acknowledge it, be aware, and actively work to just to process, you know, our own experiences so that we can fully show up for our clients. So with that, let's hop into this episode. <music> 